Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Dow closed almost 400 points higher today. In fact, it was the best gain, I think, in four months for the Dow. The biggest mover within the Dow was Walmart, which rose almost 10%. I mean, intraday, I think it was up uh, more than 10%, but it closed up 9.33% having better than expected earnings, although it wasn't all the retailers uh, that had great earnings. JCPenney missed. That stock was down 27% on the day. $1.76 is where the company closed. You know, as late as 2012, JCPenney stock price hit $40 a share. So 40 down to $1.76. That pretty much sums up Uh, the retailing space other than the online retailers like Amazon. And, you know, the reason that Walmart did so well is because they had a surge in their e-commerce because Walmart is really trying to Amazon itself and move more and more into the e-commerce business and less and less uh, into the brick and mortar retailing. Probably one of the reasons for that is the push, you know, for the $15 minimum wage You know, all these Walmart workers, there's constant complaints that Walmart isn't paying its workers enough money. Well, one way to uh, overcome those complaints is just not to hire as many workers. So to the extent that they can move more of their retailing online and kind of compete with Amazon and not rely as heavily on people just, you know, shopping through their stores, then they won't need as many employees and then they won't have to worry about Uh, the public relations problem about not paying the employees enough money or to have to deal with the consequences of paying a lot more money if they just have far fewer employees. You know, I'm going to talk later in this podcast about Elizabeth Warren's new idea to remake capitalism in her own image, uh, basically rebranding it as socialism, but putting a nice bow on it. And if this bill were to ever become law, which it's not going to do while Trump is president, but it might become law or some version of it if someone else is president like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, But companies like Walmart would be in a lot of trouble uh, if uh, this law was passed. And I'm going to get into that later in the podcast. I, I just want to finish up on talking about some other stuff first, in particular, the stock market. But the big driver of today's rally was not necessarily Walmart being up 10%, which of course is a big chunk of the Dow, but it was all the enthusiasm over the fact that the Chinese indicated some sort of willingness to have a discussion uh, about trade. And all of a sudden, this is what generated all this enthusiasm. I think the news broke last night that the Chinese were thinking about talking. I mean, I don't know how concrete the talks are as far as if they actually have a date or if they know who's going to be involved in the discussion. But the mere fact that they're going to talk 
the markets are soaring. Now, why? I mean, it's not like the U.S. market got clobbered because of the trade war. Everybody thinks we're going to win the trade war anyway. I mean, it's the Chinese stock market that got killed based on the trade war. And the Chinese market didn't even rally based on the news. It was just the U.S. market that rallied. Maybe it's because investors are convinced that the Chinese are going to come, you know, on their hands and knees and just cave and just, you know, give Trump everything he wants. And now we're going to have this sweetheart trade deal. And then all of a sudden, our trade deficits are going to go away. And it's just going to be a booming economy. And it's going to be even more jobs. I mean, this is all a bunch of fantasy. Even if these conversations take place, nothing real substantive is likely uh, to emerge from it, unless, of course, the president wants to claim credit for something when, in fact, he gets nothing, which is something that he may, in fact, do. I mean, get the Chinese to give on something that's meaningless so he can say, I brought them to their knees uh, with, uh, you know, these tariffs and these sanctions. And now I've accomplished what none of the other presidents that came before me were able to accomplish. This is all just a, a narrative that everybody is, is, is grabbing onto. You know, a week from yesterday, I think Wednesday of next week, this will officially be the longest bull market in U.S. history. And I guess near the end of any bull market, people are really insane about, you know, what news they consider to be bullish. And so the market was bid up based on what really amounts to nothing. But you know, what should really be concerning investors, and most of the articles I've read, in fact, all the articles I read that reference the fact that this is going to be the longest bull market in history, they all pretty much have the same tone, which is this is the longest bull market in history, and it's got a long way to go. More room to run, right? I'm not reading articles that are saying, be cautious, we're living on borrowed time. I mean, bull markets don't normally last this long. So maybe we're closer to a bear market than people think. That is not the sentiment that's being uh, expressed. It's like, hey, let's celebrate because the good times are going to keep on rolling. You know, this may be the biggest bull market ever, but it is going to be followed by the biggest bear market ever. And we've had some big bear markets in the 70s and in the 30s. This one is going to be bigger, not only in how long it lasts, but in how deep the losses are, and not necessarily in dollar terms. I don't think the losses in dollar terms will be as big as they were in the Great Depression, but in purchasing power terms, they're going to be worse. Because remember, during the Great Depression, prices dropped along with stocks. So even if you lost some money in stocks, if the cost of living also went down, in real terms, adjusted for inflation, it wasn't as bad. This is going to be much worse because while stock prices are going to be tumbling, the prices of goods that you need to buy are going to be skyrocketing. So in terms of adjusting the losses for inflation, this bear market is going to result in investors losing more wealth, more purchasing power than they've ever lost in any bear market in history. And it makes sense that that's how the pendulum would swing. We have the biggest bull market, and it's followed by the biggest bear market, just like the biggest booms are followed by the biggest busts. And right now, people are just completely irrational. They ignore the real news. I mean, we actually had economic news that was released today. All of it was bad, and of course, all of it was ignored. Let's start with housing starts. Now, if you read a lot of the reports, too, the reports... The headlines are about how housing starts rebounded in July, right? And they, they did rebound from the downwardly revised numbers that we got from June. See, the original number we got for June was 1.173 million uh, starts. And they were looking for about 1.27 million for July, which would have been a big improvement. Instead, we only got 1.168 million far below expectations, but because they revised June's number down, they went from 117.3 to 115.8. The July number was slightly higher than that downwardly revised June number. So the headlines are housing starts rebound. Yeah, the real headline is the number was much worse than we thought the prior month. It was a nine month low and it was almost as bad in July. But the reality is if we could revise down last month's number, 
Who's to say that this number that we just got won't get revised down next month? In which case, it wouldn't have even been a bounce. It's going to be a, another drop. And of course, rates are just going to keep going up. Mortgage rates are going higher. Real incomes are going to keep falling as consumer prices keep rising. So housing starts are going to continue to fall. Now, there was a, a, a pickup in permits. And people might believe, oh, this means that we're going to get more starts. Not necessarily. I mean, just because you get a permit doesn't mean you're going to build. I mean, just because you have the, a permission to do something, if you decide to do it, not every permit you know, ends up resulting in a start. It's much more important to see if developers actually break ground and start a construction process versus just have a permit. The permit just means they can build what they want, but they don't necessarily have to. But once they start, right, then they've kind of committed and I think the starts are a lot more important uh, than the permits because the starts are what's actually happening, not what potentially could happen. Also, you know, we got the Philadelphia Fed number out today. Um, the consensus was for a slight decline from the prior month. Prior month was 25.7. They were looking for 22.5. Instead, we got 11.9. 11.9, that's half of what we thought. That's the lowest number of the Trump presidency. You have to go back to Obama. I think it's almost two years ago when we had a number this low. So we got a lot of bad economic data today, yet nobody cares. Nobody's worried about anything. I mean, we got some economic data yesterday that I guess was more of a mixed bag. I mean, retail sales, I guess, was the, the key number. And they were real excited about that because we beat consensus, right? We were looking for a gain of 0.1 and we got a gain of 0.5. Well, the problem is the prior month's gain of 0.5 was revised down to just 0.2. So yeah, we gained more than we thought, but from a much lower level than we thought. And of course, if last month's number was revised down from 0.5 to 0.2, how do we know that this month's number won't be revised down from 0.5 to something much lower? And again, the retail sales numbers are not adjusted for prices. This is not measuring how much stuff consumers buy. It just measures how much they pay for the stuff they do buy. A lot of it has to do with inflation. And a lot of that inflation is not being measured. You know, I saw a photograph. I was like, I guess it was tweeted out and I, and I was looking at it on Twitter. And someone had taken a picture of a receipt they got from a bar and they had some scotch on the rocks. And they showed the bill and the scotch was $13 and the rocks were $2. So the guy got charged $2 for ice. Now, I don't know, maybe it doesn't count as paying more for the scotch if the restaurant could just charge you extra for the ice instead of just, you know, rolling the ice into the price of the drink, right? Because what does ice cost? Ice is water. Ice is free. It costs nothing. But I guess you can pretend that you haven't increased your prices if you just charge your customers extra for ice. But I'm sure all sorts of stuff like this is going on. Prices are rising a lot faster than the government is claiming. And one of the ways you see rising prices is in retail sales. Because if prices are higher, then retail sales are higher. Even if the actual volume is going down, if people are just paying more to get less stuff. But the biggest move in the market was in the gold stocks. And yesterday was the big day. Gold stocks got absolutely obliterated yesterday. I think the uh, the GDX was down 5 6%, but there are a lot of gold stocks that were down 10%. Some of them were down more. Gold was down about 18 bucks, which is not a small move for the price of gold. We got below um, 11.80, which I think had been a prior level of support. And I think that also scared uh, the gold market. We tried to rebound a little bit today in the price of gold. Uh, and maybe we ended up about a buck, uh, but still below 1180, about 1175. But the price of gold declined between the two days, less than one and a half percent. I mean, it's not like it's a massive decline. But the gold stocks are down about 8% as a group over the two days. They were down another 3% today, even though gold wasn't down today. Gold stocks were down another 3%. And yesterday, they were down over 5% on a move of just over 1% down in the price of gold. And there were stocks that got clobbered that were down a lot more. 
uh, than the gold stocks. And silver stocks, of course, got hammered as well. They, most silver stocks were down today, even though silver was up uh, 20 cents today, 21 cents, because it was down over 60 cents yesterday. So silver stocks went down, and then they went down again today. Why are they getting killed? I mean, the dollar wasn't even really up. The dollar was pretty flat uh, yesterday, and again today, maybe it was even down a little. So it wasn't even a strong dollar that was causing the selling in gold. I mentioned on my last podcast, and I think this has a lot to do with it, the fact that gold was not rising during the Turkey crisis, right? The fact that there wasn't flows going into gold as a safe haven, that was a bad sign because if gold is not going up when there's a supposed good news for gold, well, then when is it going to go up? Well, people are concluding never, and they are selling gold. In fact, the short interest in gold among hedge funds is at an all-time record high. I mean, it's, hedge funds have never been this negative on gold as expressed by uh, their positions. In fact, I don't think the public has ever been this negative on gold or gold stocks in history. I mean, you can go back to the year 2000, right? During the epitome of the dot-com bubble, the new economy, nobody was interested in gold. Gold had been in a bear market for 20 years, right? It was at 800 in 1980, and it was below 300 in the year 2000. So gold was as old school as you can get. Nobody was interested in gold stocks. They were very cheap. The reality is they're even cheaper now. Even though we're very close to the last huge bull market, we had gold go from under 300 to 1900 in 10 years. We've pulled back, but obviously there's been some profits, big profits in recent memory. Uh, you know, obviously those profits have been eradicated in this bear market. But despite the fact that this bear market is only a few years old, not decades old, the sentiment is actually worse now among potential investors than it was in the year 2000, which makes no sense to me. I mean, if anything, there should have been more negativity back then. And of course, you know, back then, remember, that's when we were going to have a budget surpluses as far as the eye can see. In the late 1990s, they thought we were going to pay off the national debt, right? That was another reason not to want gold, because the U.S. was going to get out of debt. There were going to be no more treasuries. People thought that was going to be a problem. Oh, what's the world going to do when we run out of treasuries, right? I mean, of all the things to worry about, running out of treasuries wasn't one of them. But now, I mean, nobody even worries about the debt. I mean, the debt is going off the charts. It's trillion-dollar-a-year deficits as far as the eye can see, even if we never have another recession. And gold is still falling, right? So the sentiment should be more bullish. If you look at all the money printing that's taken place, the fact that we just had the financial crisis, we had all this QE, and the fact that we're going to have to print mountains more of money, I mean, trillions and trillions more. There are so many reasons that people should be very optimistic on gold, far more reasons than there were in the year 2000, yet they're more pessimistic now than they were then. And if that amount of pessimism was able to give rise to such a huge move up in the price of gold from under 300 to 1900, if gold was able to go up that much based on that you know, base of pessimism. Imagine how big this coming bull market is going to be because the pessimism at the bottom is what fuels the rise. All the people who are shorting it, all the people who don't own it, all of that negative sentiment is a fantastic contrarian indicator. And I know there's, you know, there's an old saying, no pain, no gain. And there's certainly been a lot of pain uh, for people who own gold stocks. I mean, I own a lot of gold stocks. It's not all of my portfolio. I own a lot of stocks that aren't gold stocks, and some of those stocks have done very well. Uh, but obviously, the gold stocks, the silver stocks that I own have not. Right? They've gone down. Uh, but I believe that the pain that we're experiencing by owning these stocks is going to lay the foundation for an enormous amount of gain. I think the people who don't own gold stocks, ultimately, they're the ones that are going to feel the pain. They're going to feel the pain of inflation. They're going to feel the pain of a bear market. And by the time they start buying these stocks, they're going to be many, many times higher than what the prices are now. Of course, nobody wants to buy them when they're on sale, but everybody is going to want to buy them You know, when you make the price five or ten times higher. All of a sudden, there's going to be a lot of demand. 
I don't know where the bottom is in this now. I mean, now that we've broken through some of these supports, could gold fall a little bit more than this? Certainly. I mean, gold stocks. I mean, a lot of people are now saying that the reason gold is going down is because the central banks, the emerging market central banks, are going to be selling their gold. Like, Turkey is going to sell gold. I mean, look, they should be selling U.S. treasuries, and they probably are selling U.S. treasuries and U.S. dollars. I think the last thing that any central bank should be doing is selling their gold. Uh, but to the extent that some EM central bank makes the mistake of selling gold, it's not going to depress the market. Because believe me, there are plenty of central banks, like the Chinese central bank, that'll buy any gold that any other central bank is dumb enough to sell. So rather than worrying about central banks selling gold, people should be worrying about them selling dollars and selling treasuries. You know, the problem that all of these emerging market countries are having now is the consequence of their own actions. It all started in 2010 and 2011 with the currency war. Remember, when we launched quantitative easing, quantitative QE1, QE2, the dollar started to tank. And these foreign central banks made the mistake of thinking that a weak dollar was a problem because they began to worry about their ability to export products to the United States. And every country was worried that if they didn't weaken their currency, they would lose, right? They would have a competitive disadvantage against some other currency. So it was a race to the bottom. There was a currency war and all these foreign central banks were printing all this money to keep their currency from rising against the dollar. But all this extra liquidity created malinvestments, created bubbles, distorted the economies. What these foreign central banks should have done is let the dollar collapse. And had they let the dollar collapse back then, they would not be having these problems now. We would have had much bigger problems back then. The financial crisis would have turned into a currency crisis much sooner had the world not bailed us out, had they not thrown themselves on that hand grenade. But here is the key. They're not going to do it again because we're going to have to do QE4. This economy is going to go into a recession and the Fed is going to go back to quantitative easing. But the next time they do that, we are in this alone. These foreign central banks, right, having just been burned because their currencies were too weak, are not going to all of a sudden panic when their currencies start to regain some of what they lost. They are going to welcome a you know, rising currency. They're going to welcome the weak dollar. Now, I hear this all the time. Sometimes clients say, well, Peter, if the dollar collapses, won't that take down the whole world? No. The dollar collapsing is what relieves the whole world. What's taking down the world now is the dollar not collapsing. The fact that the world is trying to support the dollar and support the U.S. economy. That is a massive burden that the economy is attempting to bear. The global economy is trying to bear this burden, and it's the stress of this burden that is what is suppressing a lot of these markets. Yes, Americans, you know, we get to live better to the extent that we can convince the rest of the world to absorb all this pain, right, to buy all of our bonds, to finance all of our deficits, to produce all these products that we can consume and that we don't pay for. And in the meantime, we export our inflation and malinvestments all around the world. But I think when this next crisis comes or the recession starts and the Fed has to back, back reverse, that's it. There is no currency World War II. Uh, the rest of the world is going to let the dollar implode. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And all the speculators who have been piling into the dollar, right, they're going to want to get out. Who's going to take the other side of that trade? Nobody. And all the people who have been shorting gold, they're going to want to buy it back. Who's going to sell it to them? Nobody. So these moves are going to be ballistic when they happen. All you got to do is ride it out. And yep, there's some pain. But fortunately, at least people that follow my advice, we don't buy options. We don't buy on margin. None of my clients who own gold stocks have gotten margin calls because people don't own it on margin. I'm not telling people to buy options where, oh, you only have a certain amount of time and they expire and you've lost your money. We're accumulating these stocks over time. And the fact that we can buy more of these stocks at lower prices, it's just a gift. It's a gift from heaven. I mean, there's an old saying about gift horses and not looking them in the mouth. And rather than getting frustrated over the fact that gold stocks have gone down, you can get cited over the potential of adding to your gold stock portfolio and getting even better prices. Because in my mind, to me, 
I know where these stocks are going to be eventually. And so the cheaper they get in the short run, the more money I can make by buying them now. And so I'm not upset if some other idiot wants to unload their stocks because they're tired of waiting, because I know that the payoff is going to make the wait worthwhile. And the fact that we had to wait so much longer because the problems of the U.S. economy got so much bigger, the bubble got so much bigger, that just means that the profits, the payoff, are going to be that much greater for the people who stick it out. You know, one of the other public relations problems that gold is happening, and I'm not making this up. You know, you can go on YouTube and you can find this. Uh, this is just yesterday on CNBC. Brian Kelly was debating some guy on, on Bitcoin. And finally, finally, they got a guy to be negative on Bitcoin who was saying it's basically going to zero or practically zero. Now, they won't, ha they won't have me on, right? They won't let me, Fast Money won't invite me on to debate anybody about Bitcoin, uh, but they finally, at least, I'll give them credit for having somebody on. I mean, I'm wondering, maybe they're looking at my tweets where I keep calling them out for their you know, constant touting and touting, endless touting of Bitcoin, Bitcoin, without ever putting anybody on who has a negative opinion. So they brought this guy on to kind of have a debate with their resident touter-in-chief, Brian Kelly, who they've never once questioned his objectivity. Even though he runs a crypto hedge fund and has admitted that he sold into the hype that he helped create by pounding the table on Bitcoin and then announced after the fact that he sold into the rally, no one has ever questioned his objectivity, right? Like they do mine. When I come on there and talk about gold, it's always because I'm trying to sell it. And so I've got a motivation. I'm not being honest. But of course, this guy, of course, is completely being honest. And maybe he is like I'm not like I'm not doubting. I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy, the double standard about the way they treat somebody who is recommending gold and someone who is recommending Bitcoin. When in reality, if you really believe that Bitcoin is the future, you have to believe that the dollar is going to collapse, that the euro at the end, you have to believe that fiat currencies aren't going to work because that is the main selling point of Bitcoin is that the fiat currencies don't work. And this is a, a better alternative. But if you have complete faith in the fiat system, like almost everybody on CNBC does, then there's no valid use case for Bitcoin. I mean, at least me, I believe the dollar is going to collapse. I believe these fiat currencies are worthless. Yet I still don't see the value in Bitcoin. Yet you have all these guys coming on there that think the euro is great, and the dollar is great, and there's nothing to worry about. But somehow they find value in Bitcoin. Well, this guy you know, was making some good points. He wasn't doing as good a job as I could have done. Uh, which is maybe why he was on there. They don't want somebody who can trash it as well as I can. But when Brian Kelly was trying to defend Bitcoin, because this guy was making the point that no one's really using it, right? That it's just, you know, a, a speculative asset. And then Brian Kelly said, well, nobody uses gold anymore and it's still worth $1,200 an ounce. So, you know, what, Matt, what difference does it make? I mean, nobody uses gold. So if nobody uses Bitcoin, then why can't Bitcoin have value, just like gold? I mean, I couldn't believe these words are coming out of this guy's mouth. He says that nobody is using gold. I mean, come on. I mean, gold is being used by so many people. I mean, obviously jewelry, right? I mean, lots of people have jewelry. There's gold in that jewelry. He doesn't think anybody is using gold in jewelry anymore. When did it stop? When did jewelry stop using gold? Now it's used in uh, consumer electronics, it's in all the cell phones, it's used in medicine, it's used in dentistry. There's all sorts of industrial demands for gold right now. Gold is being used. I mean, is, does Brian Kelly think that nobody is doing anything with gold? Then, of course, you know, central banks own gold. I mean, all these stories about central banks may sell gold to defend their currencies. Well, they couldn't sell gold to defend their currencies if they didn't own the gold. So obviously, central banks are using gold as a monetary reserve. Rather than having a currency, they have gold to back up their own currency. So central banks today are using gold as a reserve asset. So what does it mean no one's using gold? If nobody was using it, none of these central banks would own it. Now I know that these guys like to say, well, the only value that gold has is because people are buying it as a safe haven or as a store of value. And if it wasn't for that fact, it would you know, be practically worthless, which is a bunch of nonsense. But the fact of the matter is gold is a store of value. Central banks use it because it's a store of value and it's liquid and it can be sold in an emergency uh, to prop up their currencies. Individuals own it for the same reason. 
Gold is liquid. It is a store of value. Yes, can it drop a couple of percent like it you know, did over the last couple of days or one and a half percent? Sure. But it doesn't implode. The value doesn't disappear overnight. And it is very liquid. And it's not somebody else's liability. So it is a reliable store of value. And that gives it value. That's part of its value. The fact that gold is a good store of value compared to other commodities, right? Because how do you store wheat? You know, that's expensive. And then, of course, you know, it can rot. Try storing oil. That's very expensive, right? Those are other commodities that have value, but it's harder to store that value. Gold, you can store a lot of value in a small place and, and it's efficient. But that storage of value is part of its innate uh, value as, as a commodity. Look, take a look at, um, at rare paintings, right? I mean, people could spend a million dollars, $10 million, $50 million on, on a painting, right? Now, is a painting really worth $50 million? I mean, do you get $50 million worth of pleasure out of looking at a, at a, at a, at a painting on your wall? No, in fact, you could make a copy. All these great masters, right? Uh, you, can, you can make a copy of them. And, you know, most people couldn't even tell the difference, right? So, I mean, you could, you could, you could spend $500 on a copy and you could look at it and to the eye, aesthetically, it's just as pleasing as the $50 million original, right? What gives these paintings so much value is their rarity and their ability to act as a store of value. I mean, if you're a billionaire and you want to store $50 million somewhere, I'll be so stored in a painting, right? That's, that store of value, that rareness, that uniqueness contributes to its value. You can't say that, well, that's not part of it. The same thing happens with gold. I mean, gold is not as rare as an individual work of art, right? Uh, but the same principles apply. It is scarce enough. It is rare enough. It does store value. And so that is part of its inherent uh, demand. So even if it's not currently being used as money, which it could be, right? Gold could be used as money in the future because it's been used as money in the past. Just because it's not functioning as money today doesn't mean it couldn't function as money tomorrow. And I hope it does function as money tomorrow. And I hope gold money uh, is on the forefront of making that happen. But if Bitcoin doesn't function as money, which it's not, then it functions as nothing. There is nothing you can do with it. There is no store of value. There's no value to store. It, it's just a, a figment. <laughs> it's just a speculative mania. And as I said, you know, we did have a bit of a rally in Bitcoin. Incidentally, yesterday when gold prices were tanking, Bitcoin actually got back up to 6,600. There was actually a rally. I think maybe gold going down was probably a catalyst for Bitcoin to go up. But of course, as soon as it went up, the selling came in. And as I'm recording this, we're back down, uh, you know, just under 6,400. I still think we're just biding our time, waiting for Bitcoin to crack below the 5,800 support level. And then I would not be surprised to see a crash, uh, to see the crypto market cap have in a matter of days. I mean, right now it's back barely above, you know, 200 billion, which is still very high for nothing. Uh, but I think we can see a quick move down or about 100 billion, maybe lower. And then we'll see how the, you know, the hodlers feel about it then uh, when you've seen uh, such a horrific amount of loss in such a, such a short amount of time. Now, of course, maybe the market won't stop. Maybe this is the end and it continues to implode. My guess is that it's not going to happen. I think that after it gets cut in half or something that it might find some support again for a while, rally back a little bit before ultimately getting crushed again and going a lot lower. I think part of the, uh, the, the final collapse in, in, in digital gold is going to be a breakout in real gold. And so far that breakout hasn't happened yet. So I think as long as the appeal of gold seems to be lost, then I think there will be some appeal remaining uh, for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But once the dollar really breaks down and gold starts to break out and you really start to see, you know, gold prices rising more dramatically in terms of fiat currencies and in terms of cryptocurrencies, then I think that's that's the, uh, the stake in the heart uh, of, of the crypto bubble. And I think then we go down, you know, in all these things. Whether they actually get to zero or not, probably not. There'll probably be some lottery ticket speculative value to these things for quite some time uh, before they ultimately zero out. But I think they're going to get close enough to it that it'll feel like you've lost all your money, even if technically you still got a little bit left.
A couple of last uh, topics that I wanted to cover. One is uh, this lawsuit uh, that Monsanto lost, and it's not really Monsanto anymore, it's Bayer, uh, which recently acquired Monsanto. And maybe, maybe you, know, I'll, you know, unfortunately for Bayer, maybe they have buyer's remorse on this whole purchase. And just full disclosure, I own stock in Bayer. Uh, we own it in our managed accounts. We've actually owned it for years. Uh, in fact, we actually bought some more just the other day on, on this decline. We had taken profits on some of our position a while ago near the highs. We didn't get out of it completely, and we bought some back. Again, I'm not recommending that anybody go out and buy Bear or sell Bear. I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm letting people know that we own it, uh, but uh, I'm talking about it just to, to highlight the problems in the U.S. legal system. And so I'm not giving out any stock advice. If you want stock advice, call up Euro Pacific Capital and talk to my brokers uh, and find out whether or not this particular stock uh, would be suitable for you or an actual recommendation. But in any event, so Bayer owns Monsanto and Monsanto has a product called Roundup. And Roundup has been around for about 50 years. So it's not a new product. Uh, and it's an herbicide. Basically, you buy it, you spray it on your lawn, and it kills weeds. And millions and millions, tens of millions of people have been using this product, right? Well, anyway, there's a chemical in this product. And the allegation is that this chemical uh, somehow uh, causes cancer, right? Or can be a contributing factor. Even though I read an article today uh, that mentions that the same chemical is actually present in a lot of the foods that we eat in a lot of cereals and granola bars. I mean, so this is people eating it. People don't eat the chemical when it's in a bottle of Roundup. They, they spray it on their grass. So, I mean, it doesn't even, you know, it doesn't, you don't ingest it. Although apparently this guy who claims that he got non-Hopkins lymphoma from using Roundup, he actually spilled some of it on his leg, right? I think he had a big jug of it or, you know, container that he had on the back of his truck. So he had a lot more than you would normally have. And maybe somehow it spilled and it got on his leg. But he's claiming that that's why he got non-Hopkins uh, uh, lymphoma. And he's apparently he's, he doesn't have much longer to live. I mean, maybe he has a few more months left to live. So he's really not going to be around to spend the $289 million dollars that a San Francisco jury awarded this guy. You know, most of it was for punitive damages. I think like 30 or 40 million of it was for his medical costs, which, I mean, I can't imagine his medical costs were anywhere near that. So most of that was probably pain and suffering because I, it was basically medical costs and pain and suffering. I mean, I'm sure the guy probably had insurance, so he probably didn't come out of pocket that much money. Uh, so it's almost all for pain and suffering because he's got cancer. But the rest of the money you know, over 200 million was punitive damages uh, to Monsanto. And of course, it's not even Monsanto because now Bayer owns Monsanto. So it's, you know, they just bought the company, yet they, they bought all this liability. But one of the reasons that, you know, we bought some more of the stock, the stock has lost about $20 billion in market cap, which is 100 times the value of this award. But the reason that the stock plunged is because investors are afraid that everybody who's ever used Roundup is now going to file a lawsuit against Monsanto, given the enormity of, of this verdict. And in fact, I mean, how do you even prove that you use Roundup, right? Everybody can just say, oh, yeah, I use Roundup. Yep. Anybody who has cancer can just claim they use Roundup, whether they used it or not. I mean, what's the odds that you didn't use it? Do you have a lawn? Yes. I sprayed Roundup. Uh, on my lawn, oh, and I've got cancer, right? Apparently this guy, because he's been using Roundup for, I don't know, 30 years, and now he has cancer, well, you know, I must have cancer because I used Roundup. But just because you do something for 30 years doesn't mean that, you know, and you get cancer, doesn't mean that there's any kind of causal relationship between the two. I mean, I'm sure the guy drinks soda, you know, I mean, he's been drinking soda for 30 years, Oh, he's got cancer. Well, how, maybe it was the soda that gave him cancer. I mean, does he eat junk food? I mean, he breathes, right? Maybe, the, maybe he got cancer from the air. I, mean, I would say the guy, you know, do you masturbate, right? Yeah, well, probably how, how long you've been masturbating. Maybe masturbation. You've been masturbating for 30 years, right? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's what gave you cancer, right? You just masturbated too much. Who knows? 
I mean, to say that just because he sprayed uh, this uh, Roundup on his grass or even spilled some on his leg, that he's got cancer as a result. In fact, everything I've read shows that all of the studies, or almost all of the studies, say that it doesn't cause cancer, that it doesn't even contribute to causing cancer. But I suppose that there are some studies that say, well, maybe it does. I mean, maybe if they gave enough rats enough of this stuff on a daily basis, maybe some of these rats develop cancer. Of course, they might have developed cancer anyway. But I suppose you can give a rat cancer if you give them enough of anything. But the overwhelming evidence is that this doesn't cause cancer. In fact, you know, Roundup is not banned. In fact, most of the articles that I've read that cover this verdict say that you shouldn't be worried because there's no evidence that the stuff causes cancer. You shouldn't be worried about eating the products that have this in it because it probably doesn't cause cancer. Well, if there's no real evidence that it causes cancer, then why does Bayer have to pay this guy $289 million because he got cancer? Now look, I feel bad that the guy's got cancer. Like a lot of people get cancer, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, Monsanto or Bayer needs to pay him $289 million just because he also used their product and then developed cancer. I mean, pretty much any company can be sued at any time. Anybody can claim anything causes cancer. The problem is the jury. I mean, this is like an O.J. Simpson jury. You have a bunch of idiots on these juries that probably don't like Monsanto. Oh, they're a big evil chemical company, right? Like, oh, chemicals are bad. Forgetting about all the good things that chemicals do, right? How chemicals improve our lives in so many different ways. Um, but, oh, they're this big evil chemical company and they're, you know, let's make them pay. You know, let's make them pay this guy $289 million. I mean, all of this stuff, these ridiculous juries, it runs up the cost of doing business. Everybody ends up paying higher prices, less innovation. Now you're going to have a legal feeding frenzy of everybody trying to line up, you know, to, to win the lottery, right? This is like the O.J. Simpson uh, jury, right? Where they can come up with a, with a verdict that is completely at odds with the facts. Now, fortunately, they can appeal and a judge can actually look at the evidence and say, this was ridiculous. There is no actual proof that this product caused cancer or in fact even contributed to his cancer. In fact, all of the studies are pretty conclusive that it probably didn't. Now, could you ever know for certain if something does or does not cause cancer? No, we don't even know what causes cancer, right? So how do we know? It's possible that anything causes cancer. And you know what? That basically should be life. I mean, anything you do in America, anything you eat, anything you use, maybe it'll cause cancer. So if you don't want cancer, don't use anything. Don't eat anything, right? Well, maybe not eating things could, could give you cancer or not doing things. But this is, a, this is an example of the runaway legal system that we have in the United States. We need tort reform in a bad way. Why aren't we getting it? Even Donald Trump doesn't come out and say we need tort reform. I mean, the trial lawyers are in control of both the Republicans and the Democrats. They love stuff like this. The lawyers are going to eat this up. And so this continues. But it makes the American economy a lot less productive because of this type of ridiculous litigation where runaway juries can just hand a plaintiff $289 million because they feel sorry for him and just stick it to some rich, greedy corporation because they don't like them. Now, speaking about sticking it to the rich, greedy corporations, I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, and if you've been waiting for the entire podcast, you know, I apologize, but now let me get to it. Elizabeth Warren unveiled her new idea in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, right? And it's her new bill that she has introduced is called the Accountability Capitalism Act, right? Now, of course, I've said this before, there is no truth in advertising when it comes to legislation, right? Just like whatever uh, Congress passes a bill, the name of the bill is generally the opposite of what the bill actually does. So if they pass a bill called tax simplification, that means that they just complicated the tax code. 
But you know, nobody wants to vote for a bill that's entitled tax complication. So you can't label it tax complication when that's what you're doing. So you label it, you label it simplification so everybody will like it, but then the, the effect is to complicate taxes, just like the Patriot Act, right? The Patriot Act is one of the most unpatriotic acts ever passed, but who's gonna vote for the unpatriotic act? Nobody wants to vote for that. Nobody wants to vote to be unpatriotic. So you take your unpatriotic legislation and you call it the Patriot Act. Now all of a sudden everybody will vote for it. Well, that's what Elizabeth Warren is doing in her Capitalism Accountability Act, because this is not about capitalism. This is about socialism. It's the Socialism Act. But of course, not that many people want to vote for the Socialist Act, although who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe in 2021, we'll actually be able to pass the Socialist Act, label the Socialist Act, because socialism is becoming a lot more popular. But of course, uh, Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to admit that this is a Socialist Act. So she's going to enable it, uh, the Capitalism Accountability Act. And of course, first of all, the idea here is that capitalism is not accountable. And so this act is going to hold capitalism accountable. But in reality, capitalism holds everybody accountable. Under a capitalist system, everybody is accountable for their own actions. If you screw up, then you have to suffer the consequences. If you make a mistake, it's on you. If your business fails, there's no bailout, right? You know, so capitalism is the ultimate in accountability because it's fair and everybody is held accountable for their own decisions and their own actions. So what Elizabeth Warren wants to do is take that accountability away, right? She wants to have the government uh, get in there and take away the accountability that is already there as a result of capitalism. So not only is the uh, act mislabeled capitalism instead of socialism, it's actually the Socialist Unaccountability Act, right? Because it wants to take people who would normally be accountable and make them unaccountable. And it's all socialism wrapped up in a, a capitalist book. But basically what she wants to do is A, she wants to force public corporations, or maybe not even public, any corporation that has over a, a billion dollars in revenue, regardless of their profit, right? A billion dollars in revenue. I think some like 40% of the board or something like that has to be appointed from the workers, right? <laughs> you know, so the, the workers have to get equal or almost equal representation with the owners of the company. But the, the bigger problem with this act is according to Elizabeth Warren, she wants to reinstall the stakeholder accountability that existed until the 1980s. I mean, I read the op-ed and I listened to her interview with Kramer on CNBC. And I mean, this guy gives her a lot more respect. I mean, he's he's like, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, he's like, you know, listening to this, like, like, like this is all good stuff, right? But according to Elizabeth Warren's revisionist version of American history, right, corporations cared about their stakeholders, meaning their employees and their customers and their communities, right? They cared about everybody up until the 1980s. And then all of a sudden in the 1980s, everything changed because all of a sudden it was all about profits. It was all about maximizing shareholder value. And that's what screwed up the country, right? It was going from caring corporations to greedy corporations who just cared about profits. And somehow this all changed in the 1980s, right? Why in the 80s? I guess because of Reagan, right? Reagan came in and the nation lost its soul. And we all became greedy guys caring about profits. And that's why the country is a mess today. That's why we have this big, uh, divide between the rich and the poor, right? And now we need to go back to the way we were. And, and Elizabeth Warren is saying this is going to be for companies' own good, that companies are actually hurting themselves by focusing on profits, that if they just did what the government wants them to do, then they would actually be better off and they would be more profitable, which, of course, again, whenever the government says we're going to force companies to do something that's in their best interest, that's nonsense because you don't have to force somebody to do something that's in their best interest. They'll do it anyway and they'll do it voluntarily. The fact that you have to force somebody to do something, it's because they don't want to do it because it's not in their best interest. If you have to be forced to do something by law, obviously it's something that you wouldn't do on your own. And, you know, people, obviously people are self-interested. And if, you know, corporations want to maximize their profits, they're going to maximize their profits. But, you know, now you've got 
uh, Elizabeth Warren thinking that she knows better, that somehow these idiots running these companies don't even realize how much more money they could be making if only they followed Elizabeth Warren's advice. Well, if Elizabeth Warren is such a great businesswoman and she and she knows what all these businesses are doing wrong, then what's she doing in Congress? Why isn't she a billionaire running all these businesses? Why doesn't she just, she can be a consultant, right, and tell all these companies what they're doing wrong and all of a sudden they can start making a fortune and she can be making a lot of money like, you know, consulting with all these companies or starting companies. The fact of the matter is she doesn't know anything about anything. All she has is government power and she's wielding it in order to win votes. And remember, the people who vote are the same fools who sit on these juries. That's the problem. They come up with these ridiculous verdicts, right? And they vote for people who are willing to do ridiculous things, promising something for nothing. Oh, we're going to make everybody accountable. But the worst part of this bill is that it says that shareholders can sue the company if the company isn't balancing the interests of all the stakeholders, meaning if the company is not taking into consideration its workers as well as its shareholders. Now, at first blush, you would think, wait a minute, why would a shareholder want to sue the company for putting profits above the workers? Because the shareholder cares about the profits, right? That's what he gets. Right? So why would a shareholder sue the company because, hey, you're not paying our workers enough. You should give them a raise. You're, you're, you're paying too many. The dividends are too high. I'm going to sue you because you're giving me too big a dividend or my stock price is going up too much. I'm going to sue you because instead of focusing on the stock performance, you should have been paying workers more money. Right. What shareholder in their right mind is going to sue the company for not paying the workers enough money? Well, the answer is a worker who buys a share of stock. Right. Because it doesn't say how much stock you have to own. So let's say you work uh, for a public company and you buy one share of stock. All right. Well, now I file a lawsuit. Right. I got one share of stock and now I file a lawsuit. You're not paying the workers enough money. You're not following this shareholder capitalism accountability act. You need to pay your workers more money. You're giving out too big a dividends. You're not focusing or let's say they laid some workers off. Right. Oh. I'm a laid off worker. I just buy a share of stock. Oh, or I own a share. Now I'm suing the company for laying people off. Why'd you lay people off? You put profits ahead of people. You should have been more concerned about your other stakeholders. You shouldn't be putting the interests of your shareholders above the interest of your workers. So you can't just fire workers because it makes the company more profitable. You need to be willing to sacrifice those profits in order to pay the workers more money. I mean, this is going to be a legal feeding frenzy. I mean, this would be the best law that ever happened to lawyers, every company would be sued by everybody. I mean, this is crazy. Of course, what would actually happen if this thing were passed? And again, it's not going to get passed. There's no way Trump is going to sign something this idiotic. There's no way the Republican Congress is going to pass something this idiotic. My fear is that we won't have a Republican Congress in 2021 and we won't have a Republican president. Hell, maybe Elizabeth Warren will be president, right? That's how crazy uh, this is. But if it actually passed, what would have to happen is A, all companies that have more than a uh, billion dollars in revenue would have to break up, right? Because there's no way they can be subjected to this and be competitive. So that would put pretty much a cap on publicly traded companies. Now, the other alternative is they can go private, right? Because I guess if they go private uh, and then none of their workers own any stock, then they won't be able to file a lawsuit because I think the way I read it, in order to file a lawsuit, you have to be a stockholder. So if, if nobody could just buy stock, if the company controls who owns the stock, then they control who could potentially sue them. Although I think the board members, I'm not sure if that was limited to public companies or even private companies uh, would have to have, uh, you know, the workers represented on the board. But this is a blueprint for socialism. It is the camel's nose under the tent. Elizabeth Warren is not trying to save capitalism with this bill. Capitalism doesn't need saving. She's just trying to put another nail in the capitalist coffin.